You're listening to the Two Tongues Podcast. And now your hosts, Kyle and Chris. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Not Kyle and Chris today, but just Chris. A solo episode today. I promised after talking to Kyle this weekend that I was going to do something a little bit different for you today. A little bit more personal, actually. Um... But given that this sort of seems like talking to myself rather than uh, to, a, to a large internet audience, I'm just going to uh, wing it. All right, so I mentioned on Sunday that I was reading this book, Beyond Theology by Alan Watts. been getting into Alan Watts quite a lot. I like him. I like him a lot. He reminds me a lot of myself. Um, and I want to talk about that book, and I'm planning on it. But this episode is not that. This episode is something else. Um, there is something he says in this book that I thought was interesting. Um, I'm going to get to it, so let me just let me just give you a little bit of an intro here. I encountered a meditation courtesy of Alan Watts uh, in this book, Beyond Theology. It wasn't the first time I benefited from one of his suggest- suggested meditations either. If you guys remember, uh, he talked about trying to meditate in, in a way where you would concentrate your your focus on your consciousness. So try to flip it around and observe yourself. Think about thinking. That's one of the ways he put it. So he's given me some interesting ideas for meditation. Um, So this was along those lines. And so I took it seriously. Not just for this reason, but for two others. Firstly, what he recommended reminded me explicitly of what you might call the Socratic method, which is the basis of modern philosophy as well as science, the Socratic method. In the form of the Platonic dialogue, we see it illustrated. So if you guys remember back to the the Plato episodes we did in season one, I believe it was season one, reading through the dialogues, it was usually two people, but often more than that, uh, talking back and forth to each other. And it's a way of thinking by the you know and and very much the same way we learn when we're watching you know stories when we're listening to stories being told or watching them on TV it gives you a different feel than reading from a book um so this this dial this dialogue this back and forth um is really important and so we see Socrates in those dialogues and he's doing exactly what we're going to talk about today what is that so Socrates takes nothing for granted if you might remember He never assumes even the smallest presuppositions. Instead, he simply asks questions as if he were an empty slate. Someone presumes to tell him that they're knowledgeable, say, about the meaning of life, and supposes that it is the seeking of beauty, so that this is something that they'll propose, let's say. Rather than assuming this position and asking how he arrived at it, Socrates insists on starting with the basics. He asks, what is beauty? A simple question, you might think. But try to answer it yourself. Go ahead. You see, it's the smallest of things. The things we assume unconsciously. The things we take for granted, which prove the hardest to define or to agree upon. Alan Watt's suggestion takes on the same feel as you will soon see. 
Secondly, what Alan offers strikes me as similar in spirit to one of my great academic heroes, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who insists that we should sit and think and write about our lives, what we want and where we want to go. Again, something you might think is obvious for most people. And yet, ask yourself those questions and tell me how far you get. Dr. Peterson makes this same point. You may think you know what you want, but if you never stop to consider it, to really think it through, you're almost certainly striving forward upon a house of cards. As they said in MTV's diary, you think you know, but you have no idea. Now to the point. What did Alan Watts suggest as a meditation? So I'll just give you the quote. He said, I cannot conceive any better way of trying to understand myself or human nature in general than a thorough exploration of my desires, making them as specific as possible, and then asking myself whether that is actually what I want. And so it is exactly this I intend on doing for you now. I will do my best to embody the curiosity of Socrates and the inner seeking of Peterson and Watts himself. This will be, by necessity, a very personal exploration. So I leave myself vulnerable, but something tells me that's half the point. Okay, so I ask myself, what do I desire? And I was thoughtful about it, but tried not to overthink it either, because I will do that. I wanted to be honest with myself without falling into too much analysis. I didn't want to second-guess myself, at least at first. Now, I will remind you that I'm a father of a young family, and so my stage of life certainly has some bearing on how I answered those questions. But ultimately, I came up with three answers. One, I want to take care of my responsibilities. Two, I want to be remembered, to make an impact on others. And three, I want to understand myself and the, the reality in which I exist. So these were the three, what do I desire? I want to take care of my responsibilities. I want to be remembered. I want to understand myself. So at first glance, I'd say that number one reflects my stage of life to a T. Number two reflects an underlying biological imperative. And number three reflects my lifelong passion of questing to understand the mysteries of life and reality. First impressions aside, let's get into this platonic dialogue style, starting with my first response. I want to take care of my responsibilities. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a conversation with myself. And this is what I did. This is how I got here. I want to have a conversation with myself where I'm genuinely asking myself questions and genuinely trying to understand them. It reminds me of something Jordan Peterson said, uh, and I think it was in his uh, 12 Rules for Life, that first book, uh, that first popular book that he wrote, where he said, I'm going to butcher this probably, but he said, try to see yourself as somebody that you want to help. So you want to try to see yourself as, like it's always like when you're, when you're giving advice to, to friends or, or, or strangers, it always seems like better advice than you give to yourself. right? You want to try to 
pull yourself away from yourself and look at you as though you're a third person and try to talk to yourself that way. And this is what I want to do today. So the first question is, what do I desire? I answer this by saying, I want to take care of my responsibilities. So my alter ego is going to ask, why? And my response, so that those people I love, my family and friends, and those who rely on me, you know, my clients, the community that I live in, my children, my wife, so that they will suffer less and benefit from their relationship with me. Why? Because I want my existence to be valuable. Why? Because if it's not valuable to others, what purpose does my existence serve? I desire validation from others, particularly those I love, that I am worthy of existence, that my existence matters to them, that my existence enhances their existence. But can it just be valuable to you? It can. But I still find I need to prove that even to myself. And then the question becomes, if my existence is valuable only to myself, then it is merely self-serving. And this seems somehow insufficient. It's not good enough. Why do you need to convince yourself of your own value? Because it doesn't seem obvious that it has value in isolation by itself. Because there are examples of people whose lives don't seem worth living to me. People who are consumed by suffering, who seek nothing for themselves or others. I want to know that I am not that. Why do you think a self-serving existence is insufficient? Because when I'm gone, all the benefit I've done myself will die with me, will evaporate as if it never was. How is that different when directed at others? They carry on after I'm gone. And so the impact of my existence carries on. They also benefit from my mistakes, my suffering, and need not make those same mistakes. This reduces needless suffering and provides a map so that they can go farther in their lives than I did in mine. So it's about legacy beyond yourself and the amelioration of suffering. That is what I'm saying. But hearing it out loud also seems insufficient. There is more to it than this. What is more important than leaving a legacy and the amelioration of suffering? Are these what individual is are these what make individual lives matter? Achieving progress is part of it. And selfishly, feeling yourself to be part of that progress too. But also bringing joy and the opportunity for yet greater joy in the future. So it's not just about amelioration of suffering, but also experiencing and facilitating joy. Yes. But not just joy, I suppose. Also things like growth and accomplishment. Epiphany and awe, understanding and enlightenment, beauty and peace, and most of all, love.
These are the particular experiences that have seemed most valuable to me in my life and those I wish most for my children and for others. They are, to my mind, what justifies suffering, what makes existence worth living. It seems to me that little or none of these can be achieved in isolation, as you said, by yourself. Do you suppose this is why the validation of others is so important to you? Because without others, these experiences indeed most experiences, would be impossible? Yes. So it is experience you value, and in particular, this very specific group of possible experiences. Yes. So is it relationships you desire most? To know and be known, if I can borrow your own words? So I want to I provide my response here but I have to interrupt the flow for a second because this is a little bit of an intimate detail. So I make a reference here to a quote of mine, to know and be known, and I just want to tell the audience who's listening what that means. So when I'm asking myself, is it relationships you most desire? Then I say to know and be known. And so when I had this mystical experience that I talk about often uh, on the podcast, one of the things that I said, I have this written down somewhere, it's something like this. To know and be known is what connects us to each other and to the beginning of time. It's just a little bit of a poetic thing that occurred to me, and I wrote it down. It has to do with consciousness and the fact that consciousness is reciprocal. And, and um, I mean, I would have to go down a rabbit hole to explain that to you, but this is what I meant, that relationships are something that I desire. And this is connected to this this epiphany that I had uh, once upon a time in a mystical experience that to know and be known, whatever that means, and that, that's a very common, uh, in fact, necessary part of, of conscious existence, of human existence. We all know things. We have the capacity for knowledge, but also to be the object of knowledge, to know others, to know things, and to be known by others. And it connects us to each other. It's this thing, this idea, this, this sort of image of consciousness abs- absorbing all things. And this is how those connections manifest themselves. So again, I ask myself, is it relationships you desire most? To know and be known, if I can borrow your own words. And I said, yes. But not just any relationship. One that is voluntary and reciprocal. Because who wants to be loved by force or obligation? I suppose I strive for competence, right, to take care of my responsibilities. And value, so that there is reason, lore, justification for others to desire a relationship with me. For it to be voluntary and reciprocal. I want to be something that others desire a relationship with. To be worthy of love. To be desired in return. So your desire is to be desired by others? Not exactly. It's not about being an object of desire, but rather about being worthy of it. To be worthy of the love my children give me so freely. To be worthy of the friendships I'm offered. To be worthy of the lifelong bond of companionship my wife gives. To be worthy of the awe and joy my life has meant to my parents. 
It is about living up to all of that. What is it about the experiences of growth and accomplishment, epiphany and awe, understanding and enlightenment, beauty and peace and love, that justify your existence and drives you to wish them for your children? Well, accomplishment reveals to you that what you thought was impossible is possible. And that the thing which made it possible is within you. It shows you that you are more than you imagine and points to a deep mystery. It allows us to feel awe in ourselves, to be struck by the majesty and magic of existence in exactly the same way as when we gaze upon the moon or look out upon the endless ocean. Epiphany and enlightenment point to the same mystery. They are moments when the unknown becomes known, when the hidden is revealed, when connections become clear and the patterns behind the world show themselves. In these moments, we understand reality to be more than we imagine. In these, we come to ask, what is this mystery that hides itself from us? This mystery within us and within all of reality. And in love, in relationship as you put it, I think we get to encounter this mystery, to speak to it, to learn from it, to embrace it, and eventually, with luck, come to understand it as ourselves. I want this for my children. For the same reason I try to recreate the Christmas mornings of my childhood for them. For the same reason I watch expectantly when they eat ice cream or when I introduce them to new experiences. I want to share my joy with them. I want good to reverberate through eternity, to echo through them what began far before I was even a thought, what began perhaps in the beginning, in that great mystery we call God. Why do you want good to reverberate, to continue? And what about the subjectivity of a word like good? Would you foist that upon eternity based upon your own judgment? Yes. Because I get a vote. My experience and subjectivity cannot help but judge the world and delineate what I find to be good and desirable and what I do not. And my judgment is as valid as anyone's. That is to say nothing of common consensus or universal values. I can't help but be reminded of that repeating line from Genesis. And God saw that it was good. I think it may be that these types of moral judgments are what it means to be made in the image of God and to participate in the act of creation. Perhaps this shines a different light on where we started. I desire to take care of my responsibilities, remember? And this forming of the future in my image, as it were, is my greatest responsibility, our greatest responsibility. We live our lives and learn to make moral judgments about what is good and worthy of being perpetuated into the future. And then we instill those virtues and experiences in our children, our loved ones, and those external versions of ourselves we call other people. 
In doing so, our DNA lives on. Our values live on. And the future is guided by them. Wouldn't such a thing make existence worth living? Wouldn't such a thing, as Jordan Peterson says, give cosmic significance to our lives? Don't you think? That brings me to my conclusion. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, wait a tick, what about the other two desires? You started with three, but you only gave us one. What's the deal? Well, I can't pull anything over on you now, can I? All kidding aside, I did begin to flesh out my other two desires. But when I did, I found something interesting. I began talking about taking care of my responsibility. But in thinking through just what that really meant, I found myself talking about legacy. It didn't take long either. I jumped from responsibility to legacy in no time. And isn't that exactly the second desire I laid out? I want to be remembered, to make an impact on others. Isn't that a legacy? Isn't that something? And what about my third desire? I want to understand myself and the reality in which I exist. See, now it took me longer to unravel to this one, but we got there too, didn't we? It took only nine clarifying Socratic questions to get from responsibility to legacy, and another seven to get from legacy to the mysteries of being. I spoke about coming to confront the mystery within myself and the world. I called that particular brand of joy awe and enlightenment. I spoke about wanting that for myself, for those I love, and for everyone else for that matter. Why? Because understanding what that mystery is, what it means, not only gives cosmic significance to our lives, but justifies all the suffering that comes with it and ultimately makes existence worth living. So you see, there's no need to walk through my other desires at all. They were wrapped up in one from the start. I could have began with any of the three and landed in exactly the same place. Isn't that something? I was like the wise man who challenged Socrates, sure of my desires, and yet incapable of seeing that I repeated myself, not once, but twice. I needed to do as Alan Watts suggested. I needed to ask myself if those desires were actually what I wanted, or if I even understood them myself. Turned out, I didn't. And maybe I still don't. But I'm further down the road than when I started. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>